Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. And we are a podcast all about the science of wildlife gardening, including some of the things we've seen in our gardens this week. So what have we seen, Ellie? We have seen a hell of a lot of burbs because the burbs are back. The burbs are back in town. Oh, that's beautiful, Ben. I know. (laughs) Yeah, the leaves have pretty much dropped off now, so the birds are exposed and it means we can ogle them, which is really great. Um, what have we seen though? We've seen gold crests getting pretty good at spotting gold crests. We can hear them before we see them. With yeah, a never in peeping. our own garden, but in no. the middle of Nottingham, yeah, a lot of urban gardens have them flying through. Yeah, flitting, flitting about, and we've also seen a lot of blackbirds. Pretty much for the first time since the big heat wave of August. Yeah, they, and we have they, seen blackbirds in our own garden as well. Yeah, every year they disappear for a while, but this time was a really long absence. And they've only just come back in the last week or so. Yep. And even more exciting, I actually witnessed a blackbird in another garden, not in our garden, jumping up from the ground and picking at the red arrows, the berry-like structures on a yew tree and having a good old feed. That's nice. That was nice. Nice. That's A-R-I-L, Aril. On that note, I also had a good spot, which was watching Red Admiral butterflies uh, actually dabbing with their proboscis actually dabbing at the uh the arrows on the ground around another yew tree getting all that rotten fruit goodness yeah well it's full of sugar yeah yeah. so you know at this time of year then it's ideal for them yeah so if any of you have any fruit that's fallen from various trees of all sorts don't be too quick to clear it up it's such a good resource for loads of those different creatures yeah yeah and we've seen loads of mixed tit flocks try saying that when you've had a couple of rums i've had one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> do it again later mixed tip flocks oh come on that's pretty good can I do it three times in a row mixed tip flocks mixed tip flocks no <laughs> anyway what goes into a mixed tit flock um, blue tits great tits stuff like that but the best of all are the long tailed tits as yeah. well which are our absolute favourites and today I had the best view of a long tailed tit that I've ever had Knocked off work a bit early, went to a local nature reserve and there were flocks of these tits coming through and they landed in a, it was actually a willow tree right in front of me. Well, one actually came onto a branch that I was looking at and it must have been only 50 centimetres from my face, right at eye level, had an amazing view. Yeah, just didn't care about me at all. I am literally green with envy over here because I wasn't there for that. And I blimmin' love long-tailed tits, I does. (gasps) <gasps> wow, wow, wow. Oh, I'm sad. Yeah, no, on that tits. note, I do want to say we've actually not been out in the countryside as much as we would have liked to this year for various reasons. But if you do have a chance, even just getting out to a nature reserve for half an hour can make a world of difference. Yeah. Yeah. And at this time of year, all the starlings are getting into their murmurations, you know, just seeing the sunset, it, it can really clear your head. It can do you a world of wonders if you, yeah, even have 10, 15, 20 minutes to spare. And also, we have been out a couple of times, just not as much as we'd like to have been, but it is definitely thrush season. And I don't mean the medical condition. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, field fairs. (laughs) Sorry. Anyway, going back to the birds, thrush. All the field fairs are coming back. And I really do struggle with their call because obviously they only come in over winter. So I kind of forget what they sound like over the summer. And then when I first hear them, I'm like, what the hell is that? Um, can I do an impression? Yeah. Okay, it's like... Uh, and then some whistling. Uh, it's just really chattery and nice. But yeah, we saw a flock of them, which was lovely. Yeah, that's great. And you heard a missile thrush today as well. I did hear a missile thrush today, which is like a a, a stunted blackbird. It has more repetition, shorter uh, verses of its song but really beautiful lovely fluty notes lovely thing to hear mm, very nice yeah. we should also talk about some plants we I should. mean the natural thing is because all the the autumn weather has finally arrived the trees have changed color and you know all the beaches the birches cherries they're all looking fabulous aren't they yeah they are absolutely wonderful um and just about hanging on in all of the torrents of rain that we keep yeah, having. It's been wet, well. isn't it? It's been wet. <laughs> yeah, we spend most of the time looking like seals outside. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one other thing, we were umming and ahhing about whether to talk about these, but things like salvias and lavenders, because it's been so mild in November, they've actually been looking really good. 
but we we don't particularly want to celebrate that because it, obviously it's a sign that climate change is is really yeah. impacting our gardens. So it swings and roundabouts because we've got a salvia, a big hot lips in our garden, and it really does look fantastic now. It could honestly be midsummer. <laughs> it could be midsummer in terms of the oh, salvias. Oh, it's in full flow. Yeah, absolutely full. And lavenders are having an extra. I think it's third like third flush. or fourth flush yeah. this year. Yeah. No, it's 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 really obviously odd outside and it does scare us quite a lot and even our houseplants are behaving oddly we have a huge epiphyllum which is supposed to be flowering sort of april may which has got two flowers on it which has never happened before so yeah the signals of autumn are all mixed up for every single plant it seems yeah and it's not because we've had the heating on and it's feeling summer warm we don't have things like heating heating (laughs) (laughs) yeah you should see what we look like right now we're like dressed up to the eyeball yeah. yeah Anyway, yeah, those are some sightings, things we've seen. If you've seen loads of stuff, then, you know, tag us on Facebook, Twitter, wherever. We love to see what you've found in your gardens. But we're just going to move on to one quick and sad news story, which is bird flu, because we have done a previous episode on bird feeders. And as part of our episode on that, we talked about the real importance of keeping your bird feeders clean. And in that episode, we were focusing mostly on a disease called trichomonosis that has dealt a a real bad blow to particularly to the finches green finches in particular now bird flu is all over the uk and you might have seen the news about the devastating impact it's had on particularly on seabirds and when we were on holiday actually up in whitby area we were on whitby beach itself and found what was it, five or six dead seabirds, yeah, various gil- species? mostly guillemots, but it's just absolutely devastatingly sad. Yeah, and we actually reported it. This is sort of fun thing you do when you're on holiday. <laughs> we actually <laughs> reported it to DEFRA, and while we were up there, um, DEFRA actually sent somebody out to collect the birds, and they were tested, and unfortunately they did have... Uh, it's H5N1, which is the highly pathogenic strain of bird flu that's going around at the moment. So what we wanted to say was... It's not as much of a problem at the moment in the sort of songbirds that we have in our gardens. But we've started to notice organisations like the Wildlife Trust say in certain parts of the country that people perhaps should think about not actually feeding the birds at Mm. this time of year. We don't have an opinion on this one way or the other because we simply are not knowledgeable enough on this. But we just want to say keep in touch with your local RSPB group, your local Wildlife Trust groups. And keep an eye on the advice that they're giving you because they might tell you that they're finding high levels of bird flu in the sort of birds that you're getting in your gardens. Mm -hmm. And if that is the case, then perhaps one of the vectors for this spreading from bird to bird is actually through infection at the bird feeders. Yeah, and in our own garden where we do feed the birds and we are going to continue feeding the birds until we hear otherwise, we are getting a whole new set of bird feeders because... That way, when one bird feeder has been emptied by the birds, then we can take it down immediately for cleaning and don't let it hang around up there and put a fresh one up that has already been cleaned. And that just ensures that excellent hygiene that Ben was just talking about. Yeah, that's right. And the way to clean your bird feeders, quite simple. Um, Make sure you're wearing gloves or your protective gear, whatever, when you're doing this. But just first of all, clear all the, the old feed out of it. Um, give it a scrub with water, but then give it a um, a soak in a 10% bleach solution. This yeah. is the thing that's most often recommended, which is the, well, it's one part bleach to 10 parts water. So if you were doing 100 mils of liquid, that would mean 10 mils of bleach, 90 mils of water, right? So then you just extrapolate that up. So just give them a clean, then soak them in this um, fluid for five minutes or so, and then you can give them a rinse off with fresh water, and let them air dry so there's no you know residue of that bleach or anything left over uh, and that's probably the safest way to make sure they're definitely clean when you put them back out if you do notice dead birds in your garden then the final thing we want to say on this is that you should report them to defra if they meet these conditions which are on their website there'll be a link to this in the show notes there's also a phone number you can call so they say you should report uh, a dead bird if you find one or more dead birds of prey if you find three or more dead gulls or wild waterfowl, so you might not find these in your garden, um, but they also say if you find five or more dead birds of any species. So if you're in your garden and you start finding more dead birds than usual, 
if you find five or more, then report them to DEFRA and they may well send somebody out to actually collect them for testing. And this counts in parks as well. Just if you see something, don't assume other people have reported it like we didn't when we were in Whitby because we could have just walked past like everyone else that was on their holiday That's there right, as they well. could have been there for days. Yeah, and we called the number and it turns out that they hadn't been reported and that was a new site for bird flu to have been reported at. So it's really important that we actually stay vigilant because the ones of us that are noticing then can actually help yeah, yeah. And it does seem to be a part of DEFRA that is still actually functioning. <laughs> this coming out to test them. So yeah, it, it does work. It does work, the reporting. So yeah, there we are. Now, before we go on to the main topic for this episode, which is all about Deadwood. Indeed it is. Let's talk about Christmas. Did you know Christmas is coming up, Ellie? <laughs> All I want for Christmas is you. Actually, I'm quite excited about Christmas this year for the first time in my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> And maybe it's because we've got a bit of a Christmas list for all of you lovely oh, listeners. Oh, very nice. <laughs> yes, we are going to be giving you all a present, which we'll tell you about in a second. But in return, we have a little list of things that you might want to help us out with over the next month or so. Yeah, we've written a, a list to Father Christmas. Yes, yeah, so should I say it in my, in my best dear Santa Claus voice, child's voice? No. no. Okay, fine. No. And, right. uh, don't send us coal either. <laughs> so the first thing on our list is you can subscribe to one of our channels that's on Facebook. We're also on Twitter. We have a YouTube channel, which we are documenting all of our escapades on our wildlife allotment and also our new upcoming newsletter. But we will describe that in more detail a bit later. You could also give us a review if you felt so inclined and lots of you have, and it's been lovely to read all the kind words that all of you have to say about this. But if you haven't yet done that, it really does help. And how do you do that? Well, you can get yourself on iTunes and actually write something about why you like the podcast. Or you can rate us on Spotify or leave us a comment on our YouTube channel. That all helps. And the third thing on our list, you could make a donation to our PayPal. Every single penny that goes to that PayPal account goes on the podcast. Yes. And my laptop that I edit the podcast with is completely falling apart. The hinges <laughs> basically snapped and I'm not really looking forward to the price of a new one. So all donations to our PayPal is very, very welcome. But our gift to you is that we are running an Ask Us Anything Christmas Q&A. So we're taking questions in advance and we'll be answering them live over on YouTube. All of you can join us. It's completely free, and it's at 7.30pm on Monday the 19th of December. So to ask a question, you can drop us a line at hello at wildlifegardenpod.com. That's our email address. Or we'll also put a pinned post on Facebook and Twitter, and you can just leave us a question there. And we're making this one an Ask Us Anything. Anything. Anything session. So you can ask me questions about sewing invisible zips into a skirt, as I've just recently done. Yeah, just learned how to do that. <laughs> and of course, on coastal flood defences, because of my previous life as a coastal flood risk engineer. Yeah. <laughs> Can't remember any of it. Don't ask too many questions about that. And Ben can cover folk music and existential philosophy, did yeah. you know? <laughs> But mostly, please, uh, about wildlife gardening, if yeah. you would. Yeah, I would. <laughs> you can ask us anything, but don't expect an answer on anything. <laughs> yeah, so if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, you can actually ask questions live during it. But even if you're not a subscriber, everybody can watch it. To get onto that, there is a link in the description of this podcast already. And it will just take you through to YouTube, where at 7.30pm, Monday 19th of December, we will be there beer in hand because it is christmas jumper after on all. christmas jumper <laughs> answering whatever strange questions you ask us <laughs> <laughs> looking forward to that so moving on to then our main topic of today which is dead wood and i've done lots of research on this 
It's all extremely fascinating. I've tried to condense it into something that you will all want to listen to and that you can use in your own gardens. But instead of just lecturing you on today's topic, I wanted to take you all first on a journey with your imaginations into the magical, mystical world of Deadwood. So sit back in a comfy chair and close your eyes. For this journey, you have passed through the automatic Shrink-A-Lot 4000. <laughs> Why are you sniggering at the back there, Mr Middleton? That's my thing. <laughs> I call everything a something thousand. Well, can you think of a better name? No, because it, fa- it sounds fancy, doesn't it? <laughs> it does indeed. I don't know what 3000 did, but anyway. And you stand at just three millimetres tall. You're in a clearing in a southern UK woodland, dominated by gloriously gnarly oaks and the huge twisted boughs of beech trees. I'm there, I'm there. You're there, good. Everyone, I hope everyone's in the same place, mentally. But even at three millimetres tall, helpfully, a great spotted woodpecker has chosen not to eat you and instead (laughs) fly you up to its old treetop lair. A carefully chiselled circle out of a large dead branch on an old oak tree, its former home was dry and weatherproof. And here it successfully raised its chicks for a couple of years. Now, though, it's just become one of its feeding grounds, where it regularly returns to peck into the decaying wood, finding invertebrate larvae to dine on. It places you down gently, and you immediately find that the inside of that dead branch that you'd considered tidying up just last week is actually a labyrinth of tunnels and holes. You wander carefully past a roosting tree creeper and sneak into the nearest tunnel. You don't have to travel far before you come across one shallow borer of deadwood, one of the 64 species of bark beetle in the UK. This is a female of the oak bark beetle in the middle of a two-week period of laying eggs in the wood. She's about the same size as you, with reddish-brown wing cases and a black shiny head. You let her be, meandering through her cutouts, travelling deeper into the branch, until you come to a much, much bigger customer. A colossal, 18 millimetres long chunk of a lava. <laughs> chunk. <laughs> and this is of the black spotted longhorn beetle. Based on its size, you think this is actually two years old, which has been feeding up on the rotting wood, and therefore it will soon spend a winter as a pupa, ready to emerge as the handsome, mottled, yellowy adult beetle next spring. A bit perturbed by that massive grub... You back away slowly from the beast towering over you and move into a smaller hole. Its inhabitant long gone, except, what's this? Something is in the tunnel with you. It's black, just a bit bigger than you are at six millimetres long. Is it a fly? It certainly has wings. You creep closer and quickly recognise it as a bee with its separate eyes on the sides of its little head. But this is like no other bee you've seen before. It's a female harebell carpenter bee. She's very happy with the nice dry tunnel you've both found and is setting about leaving a parcel of bellflower pollen for her freshly laid first egg. It seems that home is really where the hole is when it comes to deadwood. Satisfied with your aerial discoveries, you look about and notice a nice big rotting tree stump down on the ground beneath you. And by Jove, if there isn't a monodontomerous wasp nearby offering you a lift, how lucky is that? That is handy. Although she's not much bigger than you, you climb onto her back, impressed by her very long oviposter, protruding like a needle from her abdomen. Turns out that, being a parasitoid species, she's been sneakily laying her eggs into a nearby nest of a red mason bee, who's also been making use of an old beetle tunnel. You want to be sad for the hard-working bee that's had its nest hijacked, but being a naturalist, you know it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. Wasp eat bee. <laughs> Thanks, Ben. And that this wasp also needs to raise her own family. She flies you down and drops you off at the damp beech tree stump and you find you have to pick over a lot of woody debris. Turns out a badger has been pulling apart and digging into the very rotten wood to get to the bounty of worms and other invertebrates within it. It's a right mess. Shredded wood fibres everywhere, but you scramble through it, turn around, and there, narrowly missed by the badger, hidden by some debris, is the mother of all grubs. 
You look up at its little dark brown head. I say little, it's massive, with engorged segments that look like they go on and on and on for miles. Jackpot! You found a stag beetle larva. It dwarfs you at 11 centimetres long. Yes, 11 centimetres. By the way, that blew my mind. 11 centimetres. Can you even imagine that? Its sharp jaws look terrifying, but all it's interested in is eating into the splintering, decaying wood, as well as the fungi causing its decay, to become an elegant adult beetle years down the line. And just as you're turning away from it to continue exploring, what's this? You have a weird feeling, like you might burst out of your own skin. Everything around you shrinks in the blink of an eye. You're towering above the stump. Back at normal size. Phew. That's the end of the journey, Ben. What do you think? I think that was excellent. (laughs) Did you enjoy it? I loved that. (laughs) It was a pretty good trip. And the thing about Deadwood is that it really is so incredibly alive. And Ben, I've got a fact. Yes. Did you know? No. That here in the UK... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. You might know this. Here in the UK, a whopping 13% of all known plant and animal species directly depends on Deadwood. I didn't know that. 13%? That's like half of a quarter of everything. (laughs) Well done. Thanks (laughs) to statisticians. That's maths. And by the way, these are actually called saprozylic species. That's a nice word. It is, isn't it? Another fancy one. But then on top of all those saprozylic species, you also have all the other species that depend on it, like our parasitoid wasp that I mentioned in our little journey. So really, we only scratch the surface of what lives and depends on this amazing resource. I just don't like the fact it's called deadwood. It sounds like it's the end of the line. We could have also bumped into Temnius wasps. We could have bumped into daggerflies, forktailed flower bees, woodlice, bats. And we haven't even mentioned things like mosses, liverworts, lichens. And last but definitely not least, fungi, which is the main agent of the decay of the deadwood, obviously. But as with everything that we do, how does this relate to our actual gardens? Well, first of all, I will say that Monty Don very recently on Gardener's World was actually building a log pile in his own garden. And if that isn't an indicator of how mainstream this stuff is, then nothing is. But we didn't want to just stop at log piles, did we? Because there are many, many other creative ways of getting deadwood into your gardens. And we also wanted to go into a bit more detail about the diversity of wood as well within your gardens. Because it's not just a case of felling a tree and then just creating a little mound. There are so many other ways of making that deadwood an even more valuable habitat for lots of different creatures. Like with anything in wildlife gardening, aim for diversity. It is our friend. And when it comes to wood... There are so many different variables. We're talking about types of wood. So every type of tree has different properties. Some is hard like oak and some is soft like birch, which, by the way, the black and yellow longhorn beetle has a penchant for. But then also see the benefit in different parts of the tree or shrub. So we've got twiggy growth versus like the big stump of a tree. And as well as that, we've also got the different ages of deadwood to consider. Because as the wood gets rotted down by fungi and bacteria, it becomes desirable for lots of different species. And then there's also the option of standing deadwood or fallen deadwood, tree stumps, rot holes within living trees, rotting heartwood and also rotting sapwood. All of it is really valuable stuff. I'm not actually even exaggerating here, but just facing some dead wood at a slightly different angle to the sun can make a difference to the type of species that it attracts. Yeah, because in natural places, if you if you go into a woodland, you know, all the dead wood isn't nicely stacked in logs all facing the same direction. It's just a mess. <laughs> yeah, but we don't want really to in... use that mess word, do we? No, then? I mean, no, it's all... It's jazzy. All... Jazz. <laughs> okay, it's jazzy. <laughs> yeah, so if you go into a jazzy wood and you find all that jazzy mess, then... <laughs> <laughs> then, but you see what I mean? Like it's it's there's a, a structural diversity there, which is really important because yeah. that is just the way things happen in a you know in a typical habitat. But we can mimic that in our own gardens. So while in nature that is you know an unplanned thing, it's just how the tree's fallen and how old it was and everything. But in our own gardens, we can actually curate it, which is really exciting. I think. For example, you could put some wood against a south-facing sun-drenched wall or you could put some in deep in the shade under a hedge. 
you can float some in your pond and you might be lucky enough to get southern hawker dragonflies laying their eggs in it. Yeah, and also, if it's cold winter, having wood floating around in your pond helps it to stop freezing over. It does, yes. Yeah. So, yeah, lots of people talk about putting a ball in there, but yeah. why not? Just float a log. Float a log and it'll attract all kinds of different things. Definitely always bury some underground. So if you do have a log pile, it's really worth having some of that wood under the soil because that, again, will attract things like, maybe if you're lucky in the south of England, a stag beetle larvae. Yeah, and I, I have lots of stories like this for a wildlife gardener. In one of the gardens we work in, I well, there was nothing on the surface, so I didn't know there was a, a rotten tree stump underneath, otherwise I wouldn't have touched it, but there was. So I was digging just to put a plant in, dug up a, a whole spade full of wood, it completely rotten away, but in it was maybe 20 or 30 uh, lesser stag beetle larvae, yeah. which was just incredible because I, I later asked the uh, the customer when that tree was felled, and it was something like 10 years previously. Yeah. So they could have been there for 10 years and nobody had even noticed they were just doing their thing underground. So in that case, I actually then reburied them. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't disturb them. Yeah, the lesser stag tends to lay its eggs just beneath or at the soil surface. So with a rotting stump. Whereas if you do, if you're in an area where you can get the, the big boys, the greater stag beetles in the south of England, you need wood that's I think it's about 50 centimetres deep. So oh, that's a good tip. Yeah, so you do have to do these different things to attract different invertebrates in. That's a really good tip. I didn't know that. Yeah. So when you're saying burying, you mean really burying really some burying. of this wood? Or just leave a stump. That's obviously the easiest way because that's already the roots are already down, down that deep. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But all of these different things, all these different positions and orientations will be good for something. That's the point. So with all those variables to play with, there's really so much opportunity to get as creative as you can and I've made a sort of rundown of ideas from what I consider to be least creative to something for the more adventurous wildlife gardener <laughs> out there. <laughs> for the is... deadwood aficionado. So in at number one we've got log piles straight up pile some deadwood and make sure you've got some wet log piles and make sure you've got some dry log piles. As I said, make sure you bury some of that wood in your log pile. All of it is really, really useful. The next level is to leave dead trees. This is obviously the simplest way because it's less work for you. We've actually done this in a few gardens and yeah. we've even grown things like clematis up them. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, because they're very architectural. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if they're going to fall over and splat you, then you're going to have to do something about it. But in most cases, they won't. So yeah, if you've got a small tree that has unfortunately died in your garden, then yeah, grow a climber up it and leave it. Yeah. And if you're a bit nervous about leaving a whole tree standing, you can also maybe saw off a few branches and whatnot just to tidy it up. But also you can just leave the stump and that is equally valuable, as I said, for the things like stag beetles. If you are feeling brave and want to leave a whole tree, then another good way of adding a bit of wildlife interest is to drill holes into the trunk. And that just speeds up that process. So things like beetles will come and do that anyway. But if you're drilling the holes, then you've got a ready-made bee hotel in that dead tree, which is just great, isn't it? Yeah. Is that part of the process of veterinization, you would call it? Yes. And I'm going to come on to that later, Ben. But yeah, if you're drilling holes into a tree, then why not get a ladder, go up high and drill a big enough hole for a bat to roost in or a bird? All of these are an option for you. The next up from that is a loggery. It's a bit like a rockery, but with logs. <laughs> kind of does what it says on the tin. That's a stumpery, isn't it? Well, no, it's not quite the same. It's kind of like the poorer cousin of the stumpery. So stumpery was also on my list, but a loggery is just a series of logs that you've, you make a planter out of it, basically, and then you fill that with compost and soil and you can plant into it. So all of the fern lovers out there, the pteridophiles, you can plant up that beautiful loggery with lots of nice ferns same thing with a stumpery but with a stumpery you need bigger chunks of old stumps which are kind of harder to get hold of unless you're lucky enough to have them on tap in your own garden stumps on tap stumps on tap exactly <laughs> they became really popular in the victorian era actually stumperies because they were fern fanatics yeah they loved them so moving on from the loggery you could also have yourself a dead hedge and we've done this on our allotment to fill a gap in the existing hedge. I'm not going to say ours is going to win any prizes at Chelsea anytime soon. It was a bit of a rapid fire, oh, quick, we need to have something plug this gap kind of 
thing. But you can make them look really beautiful. And I've certainly seen online people that have spent time making a nice frame. So you hammer some uprights into the soil so that you've got something for your dead hedge and all that twiggy growth that you prune back from various plants every year to butt up against. And you can make it look really, really good. And you might even get wrens nesting in that. And for the artistic people out there, you could even build yourself a log wall or a fence out of rounds of dead wood. You could even have sculptures of dead wood in your garden. I've certainly seen that on various YouTube channels. And if all of this sounds extremely daunting to you, because maybe you've only got a balcony to play with, then why not get yourself a bug hotel? Because that's basically exactly the same thing as what we're talking about. Bug hotels are refuges, usually of lots of different types of dead wood, twigs, leaves, just lots of nooks and crannies for Yeah, you for can put pine cones, just yeah. anything in there. Just shove it all in. There's yeah. loads of like stuff online about how to make these. We'll probably put some links in the show notes. But yeah, it's a great project to do with kids as well. It is. And you can put them anywhere. You can put them on a wall. You can hang them on a wall tuck them away into a corner you know it's up to you and of course if you've got a small garden and you're thinking well I don't have well I I have room but I don't really want to make a big pile of logs then like we said burying wood is really really great and of course if you've buried it it's not taking up any space you know so if you've got a bare area of soil dig down 50 centimeters like Ellie said shove a log in it bury it back over and then plant on top of it. I mean, it's great. I love that. Shove a log in it. Shove a log in it. (laughs) And finally, 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 if any of you are listening and you're feeling particularly brave, you can also veteranise your trees. And what does that mean? We mentioned it earlier on. It essentially means damaging your trees and shrubs slightly to add interest and to create pockets of standing dead wood. Well, this is more about dying wood rather than dead yeah because the problem that we have uh, in a lot of woodlands in the countryside is that there's very old trees which are coming to the end of their life and they're becoming deadwood and we've got lots of tree planting going on at the moment but what we don't have a lot of across the uk is middle-aged trees Mm. but these middle-aged trees have certain good qualities which are that they're alive you know they've still got leaf cover but they have a lot of these holes and nooks and crannies for for birds and things to nest in. Yeah, that's right. A veteran tree isn't necessarily old. It just refers to the fact that it has all of these different nooks and crannies. Haggard. And different Haggard, yeah. Battle wounds. Is yeah. that a good way of describing it? It's seen a few seasons. Exactly. And in nature, this can happen from branches actually falling off or being struck by lightning, things that's a like big that. One. That yeah. is actually it's a really, really big important. one. And in your own gardens, you can sort of recreate this, albeit on a smaller scale, by pollarding your trees. So this is where you cut the growth back every year to the same point. And what you're doing by pollarding is to encourage scarring and there's going to be crevices forming. You'll still get the tree growing back every year. And indeed, pollarding actually extends the life of the tree overall. I would say that this option is probably more for people with bigger gardens who have lots of trees. I've seen a National Trust estate veteranising their trees where they've literally been... 20 metres up in the air on ropes with chainsaws, just hacking massive cuts into the trees. Yeah, They'll just lop off a branch yeah. and just have at it with a chainsaw, just yeah. completely messing it up. I think you really have to be very brave to do this. Yeah, not something... If you've only got two or three trees in your garden, <laughs> don't do this. But if you do happen to have a big garden and you've got lots of trees, then yeah, maybe just do this on one of them. Have a go. Well, thank you, Ellie. You're very welcome. I particularly like that dive into the Deadwood world. <laughs> the automatic shrink lot 4000 was good. <laughs> yeah, very good. Right, before we go on to our native plant of the month, we are talking about silver birch this yeah, time. Yeah, woofdies. But before we get onto that, we have a few announcements to make. So first of all, we are going to all give Ellie a massive round of applause <laughs> because she has been shortlisted for... The Alan Titchmarsh <laughs> New Gardening Talent Award at this year's Garden Media Guild Awards. Yeah, thanks everyone. I get to go to the Savoy at for the a Savoy. Glit- glitzy lunch. 
got to make sure I have a shower before then. <laughs> they might not let me in. No, it's pretty They're exciting. They're gardeners. Very excited about yeah, this. They don't have mud on their hands. That's how you get in. Now, that's enough celebration of ourselves. <laughs> we don't want to talk about ourselves too much on this podcast. And we've actually found ourselves using too much of our allotted hour making announcements when actually we want to be talking about wildlife. So this is going to change. Instead, from now on, we are sending out a free monthly newsletter along with the episode, which will include all of that sort of news. So it'll have all the upcoming events, things we've been up to, links to the latest episodes and to YouTube videos. And we've done this using a service called Substack because you don't need an account to sign up. So no more passwords. Hooray! No more accounts. <laughs> you just stick in your email address and you'll get one email a month. No more than that. No spam. Just updates for the podcast, basically. So we're hoping that this will make the updates more accessible to all of you because we have many more listeners than followers on Twitter and Facebook. And also, you know, Twitter could disappear tomorrow. <laughs> so Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we've decided to put this newsletter together and that is going to be where we send out this sort of update from now on. And in the long run, you'll also be able to subscribe for a few quid a month to behind the scenes stuff. So that's unedited guest interviews and more detailed articles on lots of different topics. And we're also going to be having a chat facility using the Substack app. So it's going to be like private wildlife gardening Twitter how juicy does that sound? Yeah, that would just be for listeners. Yeah, and that's just for you to share what you've been up to with each other. But we're not launching that just yet. And the newsletter will always be free. Yes, you don't need the app to get the newsletter. I want to make that really clear. It's just to your email, no account, nothing like that. Yeah, and as an example of the sort of update that will be sent out in the newsletter, we're arranging our first ever podcast meetup. Exciting! Woohoo! And it's going to be in a fabulous winter garden in the south of England, near Southampton, on Sunday 26th of February next year. This is basically a chance for all of us to meet face-to-face. -face. I say all of us. Got to get 2,000 people. <laughs> 3,000 nearly. Oh. Oh. Yeah, if you're in the area and you fancy going to a garden and meeting us face-to-face -face and having a chat about wildlife gardening, then do come along. That's Sunday, 26th of February yeah. next year. It's just a chance to meet up and meet some new friends. And if you can't make it to that one, we're actually going to spread ourselves around the UK over the next year or so and hopefully we'll end up somewhere near you eventually. So to sign up to the newsletter, visit wildlifegardenpod.substack.com or... Like everything else, there will be a link in the show notes and in the description of this episode. Announcements over, and from now on, the episodes will have less waffle like that and more waffle like this. Native Plant of the Month time, and this time we are discussing silver birch, also known as Betula pendula. So Pliny, apparently, used the word Betula for pitch, which is a sort of adhesive tar that can be produced from birch bark. So that's where the Betula bit comes from. I don't know if that's Pliny the younger or the elder. Couldn't find an answer on that. And also Pendula means hanging, as in pendulous. Now, I've not been able to find many older common names for this. Normally, there's loads of common names for these plants, um, certainly birch has been used for hundreds of years so you would expect it to have a long sort of cultural history which it indeed does but yeah couldn't find many other old names and actually even the silver bit is fairly new as the use of the word silver for its sort of whitish silvery bark is actually unknown before a poem by Tennyson so we're only talking a couple of hundred years old that people talked about silver birch. Silver birch is one of two similar birches native to the UK, the other being Betula pubescens, called the downy birch, and they can actually hybridise. There is also a third, actually, which is Betula nana, dwarf birch. But the one we're talking about, silver birch, is a deciduous tree. It grows up to about 30 metres tall, and that's if it's standing alone and allowed to reach its full height. And it's got an average lifespan of somewhere around 100 years, give or take. And I've found a few brilliant names for the sizes of trees. So a tree that grows over 30 metres is known as a megafanerophyte. 
Nice word. Yeah, and there's also another word, which is mesophanerophyte for trees that are between 8 and 30 metres tall. So I suppose that includes most shrubs. Yeah, so birches fit into one of those two camps. And that's a couple of nice new botanical terms for you all. The tree itself has small green leaves and they're between an inch and two inches long with a serrated edge. And these are held on those pendulous dark twiggy branches. And of course, the silver part of its name comes from its silvery white bark that looks incredible at this time of year. And, you know, in that sort of low autumn sun that we're getting at the moment, if you catch it just right, they just glow. They look like they're on fire. Absolutely stunning. But this silver bark is actually broken by lots of little dark fissures. And these are around the lenticels. What's a lenticel then? Oh, good question. Well, lenticels are pores on the trunk that allow gases to pass between the air and the plant. So normally you get gas exchange through the leaves, which we all know. You can also get gas exchange through the roots. But in this case, air passes between the atmosphere and the body of the trunk through these little pores. And if you've seen lots of types of willow or poplar aspen do this as well, you might see that they're really spotty on the trunk. And that's actually those pores, the lenticels that you're looking at. Now, despite the lack of older names for birch, it does have a very long cultural history. The bark has been used for thousands of years as tinder. Um, It's been used to make cups, for twisting into rope and for tanning leather as well. And if you cook the bark up, as I said earlier, it produces that pitch, a sort of tar. And there's been lots of historical evidence that in the Neolithic period, this tar was the thing that was used to fix flint arrow and spearheads onto their wooden shafts. It also has many medical uses. Traditionally, it was used as a treatment for urinary tract infections, which is partially backed up actually by modern research, which has found it has antibacterial and anti-inflammatory effects. And the leaves were also traditionally used for hair loss, which given the fact that Ellie takes great pleasure in pointing out my receding hairline. Makes (laughs) me sound very mean, (laughs) but it is receding. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I might have to go and buy some birch shampoo somewhere. I don't know if they still make it. (laughs) The twigs, of course, are used in bez and brooms. And some silver birch varieties, such as the curly birch, are quite sought after for wooden veneers because they've got a curly grain. And birch apparently is the preferred wood for smoking herring. Hmm, that's interesting. And of course, last but not least, we can't forget birch sap, beer, syrup and wine which you get from tapping trees in the spring, which we've which done a bit of. We did. Well, it's sort of when we first met, wasn't it? We we had a go at tapping birch trees. That's and how making... you woo somebody. <laughs> <laughs> it was disgusting beer. <laughs> it was wine. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. No, it did. Well, it was fine. It just, you had to add a lot of sugar. Well, it worked. It to... We're still going, whatever it is, 10 years later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, birch tapping, it's an old technique. It's similar to how they make maple syrup, basically. you All you do is you drill a hole into the tree when the sap's rising sometime around sort of late February, March time. And the sap, which is contains a sugar, which is what the tree's using to, you know, fuel its growth, and you just plug a little funnel into it and you collect it up. Yeah, it's amazing to watch. Now, where does it grow? Well, if you imagine a map of the Northern Hemisphere and you draw a thick line right through the entire of Europe, Central and Northern Asia, all the way around to Alaska and Canada, that's its native range. So it's got a huge range and its southern extent is actually limited by rainfall. The silver birch needs at least 10 millimetres on average of rain in the summer. That's a good statistic to know because we always instinctively know that silver birch is the first tree to yellow. We always call it the canary in the mine in a drought. So, yeah, that's why it needs a certain amount of rainfall. That's right. And it's really suffered this last year. Mm. Yeah, it was one of the leaves that looked like autumn in the middle of August. It did, yeah. Yeah. In the north of its range, it's limited by temperature. So it can go down to, it's fully hardy, it can go down to minus 20 degrees C. But downy birch, that's close relative, actually can go even further down to 30 degrees C. So as you head north or up, you will eventually stop with the silver birch and the downy birch will take over. Silver birch is also a classic example of a pioneer plant. It produces a huge number of seeds and it rapidly colonises disturbed ground following fires, landslides, even in higher altitudes, avalanches, things like that. Anything that scrapes the ground clear, basically. And it's also able to grow on poor ground and suitable for most other trees. So it will grow in peat bogs and fen. 
And I actually grew up really close to a beautiful birch wood at a place called Homefent in Cambridgeshire. And Ellie also happened to study that in her degree. I did, yes. I've read that birch tends towards this rapid colonisation on acid soils in particular, where ash does the same job, but it really dominates on calcareous soils, and that's any sort of limey or chalky soils. But in several studies, they've actually found birches to be colonising chalk grasslands on sites in Cambridgeshire and in the Chiltern Hills as well, so I don't think that's quite as clear-cut. But there are a few things that birch definitely doesn't like. Like many pioneer plants, they're highly intolerant of shade and they compete very poorly with other plants under an enclosed canopy. And part of the reason for that is it's really small seeds. So this seed only has enough energy in it for about two centimetres of growth. Whereas something like the Scots pine, which also grows very rapidly, can grow eight centimetres tall just on the energy within that seed. And also birch is highly reliant on a relationship with mycorrhizal fungi. And these are fungi that live in the soil and they actually colonise the roots of lots of different plants, particularly woody plants. And without them, birch actually can't access all the carbon and nitrogen that it needs to grow. But in most cases, the seedlings don't actually make that relationship. So it's already a disadvantage sort of in a woodland setting versus other plants. So while you will find silver birch as part of a mixed woodland, you tend not to find lots of birch saplings under an enclosed canopy. But now we know where it grows. Of course, what we want to know really is about its sexual antics. Betula pendula is monoecious, meaning that it has both male and female flowers on one plant, but these flowers are actually unisexual, so we have separate male and female flowers. And in this case, on the birch tree, we're talking about catkins. And these catkins release pollen into the air because this is a wind-pollinated plant, the name for which is botanical klaxon. Botany. Anemophilus pollination oh that's another good word that is good and you might have heard of anemones of course we know about anemone nemorosa that's the anemone that grows in uk woodlands well one of its common names is windflower and so anytime you hear the prefix anemo something we're referring to the wind and of course an anemometer is the device that you use to measure wind the male catkins are between two and six centimeters long when they open and the moment a flower opens remember it's called anthesis pollen is then released exclusively between 6 a.m and 10 p.m very strict yeah and i could <laughs> not work out why that is we talked about what was it two episodes ago yeah it was hawthorn yeah right hawthorn only makes its flowers accessible and releases pollen during the daytime Mm. because it's trying to attract day flying pollinators particularly for some reason i don't know but this is wind pollinated and the wind still works at night Mm. so i have no idea why this is the wind does still work at night but actually you tend to get windier weather in the day That, that is a fact is that a fact? Yeah, the, the air becomes more still on average at night. So maybe that's something to do with it. That is good to know. Any questions on the Q&A about wind at various times of day? Ellie is your person to refer <laughs> them to. Yeah, so during the day, between 6 and 10, that wind is released by the male flower. It's blown by the wind to a female catkin and it then lands on the catkin. And this starts off small, green and erect. And if pollinated, it then hangs down it expands up to about four centimetres long. It turns dry, brown, papery, and the seeds within it develop. These seeds are contained within little winged fruits, only about three millimetres across. And harking back to our previous episode on fruits, just a couple of episodes ago, these fruits are known as achenes. And each tree produces masses of these achenes shed from July onwards, with a peak in about September or October. And birches are one of the many trees that ebb and flow in the quantity of the viable seeds they produce. So they have these mast years where they have really, really heavy seed production. In birches, this happens once every two or three years, typically. And generally, in a good year, if you went around the tree, looked at the ground and counted the number of seeds, you would find about two and a half thousand seeds per square metre on the ground. 
That is mad. Two and a half thousand seeds in per square meter. Yeah, but that is uh, in a typical year. Yeah. In an exceptional year, records <laughs> have been made up to fifty three thousand seeds per square meter. <laughs> so are they just really hedging their bets again. Yeah, they like, seed around. They- That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> birch flowers also produce fruits these sort of akines even when they've not been pollinated so if you go under a birch you might think wow this is having a good year but it could be it's off year the way to work out if all of these fruits actually have a seed in the middle is you sort of slightly dampen them and hold them up to the light to a torch and you can shine through that papery outer and if you see a dark blob in the middle then that's the seed which shows it's a viable seed that's fascinating. I, I like the fact that it just means that this tree, even if it hasn't produced seeds, it's like, yeah, I'm just going to make a load of mess on the yeah. ground. <laughs> Get your brooms out, guys. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it wants to be noticed. That's right. Like pollination, seed dispersal is done by the wind, hence the fruits having these little wings to help them glide along. And most of these seeds fall within about 40 to 50 metres of the parent tree. But once on the ground, strong winds can then carry them further another 10 or 20 metres. And because it also grows in areas which are prone to snow cover, if it's already snowed when these seeds drop, they might land on the snow. And then in the spring, when that snow melts, they get carried away with the melting water. So that can massively extend the distance that the seeds travel. And what value does all of this lot have for wildlife? Well, last month we talked about a fern, which doesn't have any particular value for pollinating insects beyond shelter, of course. And so you might think the same is true of silver birch, given the fact that it's wind-pollinated. Yes, but only to an extent, because actually silver birch is one of the very best plants you could grow in your garden for wildlife. And the number of species that it supports is really quite astounding. Starting just with the invertebrates, a British Ecological Society paper uh, on the tree has records of over 400 invertebrate species being reliant or associated with silver birch over part of their life cycle. And that is almost certainly an underestimate. So we are literally talking about hundreds and hundreds of species that rely on this tree. Some examples. So we have the birch catkin bug, which is Clydoceris residae, and that feeds on, unsurprisingly, the birch catkin. And we saw that for the first time just this year. So many different stages of their development as well. So it looked like lots of different bugs, but they were all the same one. Yeah, because each of those stages is slightly different coloured, isn't it? Yeah, really fascinating. It also supports several species of beautiful little beetles called the cryptocephalus beetles. And those feed on the leaves, as does the appropriately named birch leaf miner, which is a species of sawfly. And remember, all of these are food in turn for other species. Is also the food plant for the scalloped hooktip, the Kentish glory, and the orange underwing moths, amongst many others. Rubbing my thighs right now. Oh, moths. very nice. Yes. Wow. So the caterpillars of those either eat the leaves and some moth caterpillars will actually eat the catkins as well. And if you're incredibly lucky... It is also the host of a rare migrant butterfly to the UK called the Camberwell Beauty. And you'd have to be very, very lucky to find one of those in your garden. But if you've got a birch tree, who knows? On to the bigger things. Seeds provide a major part of the autumn and winter diet of many birds. Things like the lesser redpole and siskin. And the seeds are also eaten by bullfinch and goldfinches, blue tits, great tits, song thrushes and house sparrows. The buds and catkins are also major food sources for black grouse and ptarmigan. <laughs> have, <laughs> seen, have, you, have you seen many of those in our garden They're recently? Always, I cannot go into our garden in Nottingham without seeing a black grouse. <laughs> but that might just be because I've been drinking too much whiskey. Finally, let's add some fungi into the mix. And lots of fungi are really reliant on birch. So we have the birch polypore, which actually lives on the tree, although it's a parasite, really. Um, Eventually it will kill it. But, you know, it's interesting to see. And I'm just going to mention two more species, Tafrina betulina and Tafrina nana. And these are the fungi which cause witches' brooms. And it's not just birches that get witches' brooms. But if you've looked at a tree and you've seen what looks like a tangled mass of twigs... Not a not a nest, but they're coming out of a branch, all sorts of crazy directions, hundreds of little twiggy branches all tied around together. That's commonly called a witch's broom, and it's yeah caused by these particular types of fungi. So it's the same fungi even if it's on a different type of tree? There might be different species. Okay. But I think it's the same genus. Mm. Yeah. Tafrina. Tafrina. Mm. 
What we want to know then is how to grow one. Well, thinking back to how it grows naturally, we want to give them an open and sunny position. They hate competition and being overshadowed by other trees. They're also very intolerant of drought, as we've already explained. They're not a particular fan of very cold winds, which can actually cause the young buds and catkins to die off. So if you have a very dry, shaded garden on the coast, where it's really windy, or in the upland somewhere, um, then perhaps this is not the tree for you. But Otherwise, they're really tolerant, even of poor soils. On fertile soils, they'll also grow very well. pH-wise, not too fussy either, and they are hardy down to minus 20, so they would make a wonderful addition to most gardens. And just a note on cultivation here, there are loads of varieties to choose from, and I'll come on to those in a minute, but birch are one of those trees I feel most sad for in the way that they're pruned. Oh my goodness, so many bad examples. We see it everywhere. Yeah, they just, they don't really like being pruned. They hate it. The shape of them is totally lost as soon as you put a saw in it. It's, yeah. Make sure you've got the space for the birch so you don't have to prune it. That's, uh, I think that's probably my biggest tip actually yeah, for this. That is that is the right advice generally for any tree. Yeah. Birches have a beautiful, graceful habit. And if you just lop the top off, it doesn't regrow and hang down like that. So pick a variety that is right for your your space but if you do absolutely have to prune one and you've already got one then i'd really recommend doing it in midsummer. and this is different to advice for a lot of other trees so if you go on the arboricultural association whatever tree you've got in your garden they have good advice on this but you want to prune a birch when the sap is neither rising or falling and if you can do it in midsummer when the sap is stationary then that is probably the best time to do it because otherwise just like tapping the tree when you tap it you only take a bit out but if you make a great big cut off and leave it it can actually bleed and uh, it will eventually weaken and kill the plant if you're unlucky you can try growing yourself one from seed but because they're highly reliant on this mycorrhizal inoculation to survive you would have to make sure they're getting inoculated i don't know how they're propagated commercially i can actually find this out mate they might be taken from cuttings or layers something like that but i would assume you're not going to have great success by sowing them into a pot of sterile compost instead i would make a little seed bed just take a little area of your board it can just be you know 30 centimeters square weed it and then sow these seeds onto the surface and make sure these seeds are actually filled again you know that trick just shine a light through them see make sure there's a, a seed in the middle sow them onto the surface they need cold winter to germinate and uh yeah and then they might germinate once they've grown up and are about a year old so that following winter then you can lift them carefully with all their roots and transplant them to where you want or you could just go and buy one so i'm just going to give you some cultivated varieties now and one of the best things about birch is that there is a variety to suit almost every situation. So we have Betula pendula fastigiata, and that grows narrow and upright. It's got a fastigiate habit, so any fastigiate tree grows upright, as does the equally upright but shorter fastigiate joes. Then we have Youngii, which is a beautiful cultivar with a dome shape, even more pendulous habit, and you see that in lots of parks and gardens. Uh, there's a purple-leaved variety, which you may guess is called purpurea. You could also choose one with twisted stems, which is called spider alley, and a particularly graceful but taller variety called tristis. And as a final option, there's a really interesting cultivar called dale carlica, which actually has really deeply cut, feather, almost feathery leaves. Very, very different to the wild plant, but really sort of interesting specimen for your garden. thank you very much Ben and of course now's a really really good time to be planting trees in your garden so I don't think there's any excuse for people not to be thinking about a silver birch they are stunning stunning trees and of course buying somebody else a tree as a Christmas present is I think one of the best things that any of us can do and while we're on the topic of Christmas presents very can, smooth. I, <laughs> can I remind you of our little Christmas list if you can subscribe to us on one of our channels Leave us a review if you've got a few minutes, if you're liking the podcast. And if you can, a donation is always gratefully received. Thank you very much. Yes, and we will be reading out everybody who's donated in the last two months. 
in the next episode of the podcast and in exchange remember we have our ask us anything christmas q a coming up on monday 19th of december 7 30 p.m a final mention also for our newsletter so if you want to keep up to date with events in the future they will only go out in the newsletter so we don't have to waffle about them in the podcast remember there is a link in the description everybody can sign up you just need to put in your email address and all that leaves for us to talk about is the next episode and we're going to be discussing plants for a winter garden very apt now that temperatures are finally finally dropping and we're also going to be doing our first parasitic native plant of the month and anybody guess what that is Though in the meantime, keep exploring your gardens. Bye. Bye. Veterinarize. <laughs> Are you veteranize? <laughs> veterinize. Yeah, not veten veter veter. Veterinize. 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 Say that again. Veterinize. But if any of you are listening and you're feeling really brave then you can actually do something called veterinizing your trees and shrubs ben's looking at me like i'm not Veter- saying that right no. veterinize veteranize <laughs> veteranize yeah that's right veteranize no that's wrong veterinize you're Veten- put your veteranize 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 what am i saying Vet. Veterinize. Oh yeah, veteran. You're saying veterinize. 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 Okay. Veterinize. Yeah. Veterinize. No. Veterinize. 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 Why can't I? I can say it. Veterinize. Yeah, you just don't say it every time. Veterinize. Yeah. Okay. Fine.